Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. All right, folks, you know, when you hear my voice, it's time to get political. And today, we're going to get deep into the weeds. Now, don't get nervous. I promise you won't get tangled up in here. Following the election of Donald Trump in 2016, the Democratic National Committee, henceforth referred to as the DNC, got a lot of flack for what was viewed as a monumental failure. And for Democrats, it was. But to understand what happened on election night in 2016 and how the DNC is working to avoid a repeat of that in 2020, we have to go back a bit. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent. Okay, not that far, you guys. Let me set the scene. In 2015, Hillary Clinton is the heir apparent for the Democratic nomination. Big names like Vice President Biden and Elizabeth Warren decide not to run, and she faces a little-known Vermont senator. Do I consider myself part of the casino capitalist process by which so few have so much and so many have so little? No, I don't. Bernie Sanders, of course, he's a self-described democratic socialist who no one in establishment politics took very seriously. Fast forward to early 2016 on the verge of the very important first caucus state, Iowa. Clear victory for Clinton would finally put the insurgent Sanders campaign to bed. That's not what Hillary Clinton got. I stand here tonight breathing a big sigh of relief. Thank you, Iowa. People of Iowa have sent a very profound message to the political establishment. The Iowa caucuses were on February 1st, and not only was the result close, with Clinton winning by a hair, but there were allegations of fraud. Yeah, we said people could have left, so that's not accurate. You want to make sure they counted everyone. There were three people left, so we do know that three people left. And ultimately, the Sanders campaign lasted much longer than anyone could have imagined. Sanders didn't formally endorse Clinton until July 12th, just two weeks before the Democratic National Convention and just four months before the general election. And I intend to do everything I can to make certain she will be the next president of the United States. With that endorsement, Democrats hoped to move forward as a unified coalition on their way to Philadelphia for the convention. That also didn't happen. On July 22nd, days before the convention, DNC emails were leaked, showing a bias by the party against Sanders. Like these quotes, for instance. It's not a DNC conspiracy. It's because the Sanders campaign never had their act together. And? He must be a Bernie bro. That leaked forced the resignation of then-chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. The Florida representative was even booed during a breakfast for her state's delegation. Good morning, Florida! All right, everybody now, settle down. Sanders supporters were enraged, and tensions reached a boiling point on July 26th when they walked out of the convention in protest. This is 
That sentiment from some surrogates and supporters never dissipated during or after the primaries. One campaign, the Clinton campaign, was able to control all of the economics within the DNC. The process was rigged. The elections are rigged. You're going to play tricks like this? Who are you? I mean, since you want to go there, this is really about a DNC that lacks accountability and transparency, period. So was the process rigged in Hillary Clinton's favor in 2016? You know, I'm not sure, Amy, that the answer matters. That's Tom Perez, DNC chairman. If people believe that the process in 2016 was designed or implemented in a way that helped Hillary Clinton, then that's game, set, and match. And that's where trust gets undermined. Perez was elected chairman of the DNC in 2017. And his mission is to ensure that 2020 isn't a repeat of 2016. That doesn't just mean winning. It means reinstilling faith in the system for Democrats. And the DNC has done a lot of work on this front. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that when you lose elections at scale, you got to watch the game film, figure out what went wrong and uh, address it. I talked with Chairman Perez recently about the reforms the DNC has undertaken. We have redoubled our commitment to a 50-state strategy. We made unprecedented investments in this midterm cycle that enabled us to have historic gains up and down the ballot across the country. I'm proud of our investments in Kansas, and I'm proud of our investments in the industrial Midwest. I'm proud of our investments in Latino, African-American, Asian-American communities. I'm proud of our investments in rural America that enabled us to make real gains. We're also dramatically overhauling our technology infrastructure. What What is here at the DNC now in terms of uh, technology is night and day different and better from what we had even two years ago. And so uh, we learned a harsh lesson. And the lessons were this. Number one, you have to be a 50-state party. Number two, you have to be a 12-month-a-year party. All politics is personal. You've got to develop relationships. You can't show up a month before the election, remind people to vote. That's transactional politics. That's not relational politics. And because we helped build an every state infrastructure, because Democrats were organizing in every zip code, you look at how governor's races went in places like Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and elsewhere. Uh, You look two years earlier and how Secretary Clinton didn't do as well in these areas. And Democrats this time around were able to do much better. We went to school on what had happened in the preceding eight years, and we've learned from it, and we're continuing uh, to win elections. And I'm bullish going into 2020, but I'm also very, very mindful of the fact that we have more work to do. You do believe that it was infrastructure more than it was the candidate that was a problem for the Democrats in 2016? Well, I think think you have to ask a broader question, Amy. Hmm. What happened over the course of years that resulted in the loss of roughly a thousand net seats in state legislatures. Mm-hmm. We had 60 seats when Barack Obama took office in the Senate. We ended up with 48 at the end of 2016. We had far more governorships and we lost uh, those. We were losing elections up and down the ballot. So the question we asked wasn't simply what happened in 2016. The question was what took place in the years leading up to 2016? And, and what took place is, you know, we became, as a DNC, the party whose mission was solely to elect a Democratic president every four years, as opposed to what our current mission is, which is to elect Democrats up and down the ticket from the school board to the Oval Office. 
and to have an every zip code strategy and to make sure we're organizing every day of every year, not just every fourth summer in the run-up to a presidential cycle. And I think the change of that mission statement, the investments in organizing, the investments in technology, the investments in voter protection, and the partnerships that we've been able to build within the broader ecosystem uh, have enabled us, I think, to really have a great run in 2018. And we are building on those successful elections moving forward. You spent a good chunk of your early days as DNC chairman having to both apologize and soothe some of the more disgruntled members of the Democratic community. I was reading during 2018, as you were out on the trail, you went and argued, this is a quote of yours, we took too many people for granted. You specifically noted African-Americans that you frequently took them for granted. So I'm wondering, um, how much of your time now are you spending still sort of relitigating or apologizing or reassuring your Democratic constituents? And how much of your time is focused forward? Well, I'm a big believer, uh, and my parents taught me this in my work as a prosecutor over many years taught me this, that honesty is the best policy. And when I got to this job, I thought it was really important to listen and learn. The honest reality was the DNC and the Democratic Party fell short in many ways. And uh, my job was to rebuild infrastructure and to rebuild trust. And that's exactly what we have done. And I was very candid in acknowledging our shortcomings and taking ownership of those shortcomings And you see the reforms we did in 2018 to the superdelegate process. We're going to have six states that did caucuses last time that'll do a primary this time. And as a result, more people will vote. I think we've been able to earn people's trust back. And and trust is, that's something that is a timeless journey. Everything you do every day, I am here uh, making sure that we're fair to everybody. We have to understand that that is a 24-7 job. That is how we build trust in the brand. And I think we've been able to win elections because people understand that it's the Democrats who are fighting for health care for all. It's the Democrats who are fighting to make sure if you're diabetic, you can keep your health insurance. If you're diabetic, we're going to try and bring down the cost of your insulin. It's the Democrats who are fighting for good schools in your neighborhoods and, and for, frankly, an America that works for everybody. And people are trusting our brand more. People see that we are working hard to treat everyone fairly. And I think we saw those results in the 2018 cycle. We have more work to do now, and that's exactly what we're doing. Okay, so we just heard about a shift in the mission of the DNC and efforts to rebuild trust. But some of the most tangible changes to the process have come in a new set of rules that the DNC will use to govern the nomination process from the debates. If there are 16 candidates who make it in June and July, then we'll go eight and eight on consecutive nights, and we will use random selection to to determine who is there. So there's Uh, no uh, A team and B team. Right, no no varsity, JV, varsity, and, and this is what we'll do for the first two. To the caucuses. Our North Star here is we want to return our power to the grassroots. That's why we will have more primaries and less caucuses. And perhaps most controversially, superdelegates. I think the best way to do it is to go back to 2016. 
let's say we're two weeks before the Iowa caucus. So not one vote has been cast across America. At that point in 2016, as you turn on the TV and you would have a indication that candidate A has already amassed 400 delegates to the convention. The concern was that no voters had weighed in and already the existence of superdelegates had put a thumb on the scale and it put people at an operational disadvantage. And so fast forward to January of 2020, superdelegates will not be counted on the first ballot unless a person has gotten the majority of the delegates already. And so what that means is on January 20th, 2020, nobody has any uh, delegates to the convention. Right. So it starts off candidate X has zero, candidate Y has zero. Everybody starts at zero. Everybody's got zero. Even though they uh, may have privately, they may have gotten assurances from people who are official superdelegates that they are going to support them. But those superdelegates will not count on the first ballot unless that person has gotten the majority of the vote. Tom Perez, chairman of the DNC. All right, let's go through and break down these DNC reforms for 2020 one by one. First up, the super big change to superdelegates. So a delegate is basically a stand-in for voters. They represent the regular people. Superdelegates aren't awarded based on how a candidate performed in a state or caucus. They are party leaders who get to choose anyone they want, regardless of the votes that candidate won. After 2016, many Democrats wanted to get rid of superdelegates altogether, saying those unelected representatives were rigging the system in favor of the establishment favorite. But my colleague, Dave Wasserman from The Cook Report, notes that it's the way Democrats allocate the regular delegates, those people who represent the voters, that's just as problematic for the party. Well, a big reason Donald Trump was able to wrap up the Republican nomination months before his convention was that Republicans give states the leeway to allocate most or all of their delegates on a winner-take-all basis. The Republican Party's much more about free markets, right? And so that really helped Donald Trump win large shares of delegates with small pluralities of the vote. For example, he won all 50 delegates in South Carolina, even though he only won 32% of the primary vote there. On the Democratic side, everyone's a winner as long as they get 15% Uh, support or more. So they get a proportional share of delegates. And that makes it very, very difficult for a Democratic frontrunner to establish an insurmountable lead. And the change in the superdelegate rules, which will prohibit them from casting a ballot at the 2020 convention unless the outcome is uncertain or deadlocked, could actually backfire. The irony is that the rule change might be addressing the wrong problem. Superdelegates could have even more power than before if there's a split convention and no candidate has a majority of delegates, which, given the front-loading of the Democratic calendar and the furious pace at which candidates are raising money, could very well happen. And even though superdelegates aren't allowed to vote on the first ballot, if you have a split convention, they could be the deciders on a second, third, fourth, or even successive ballot. So this carries enormous risks for the Democrats if you still have the party fighting amongst each other with little more than three months to go before the general election. 
You and I have also had conversations about a long, drawn-out process that could have implications going into the general election in the way it did in 2016, where a candidate that does not end up winning the nomination but has a lot of fervent supporters, got a lot of delegates, may not feel as inclined to rally around the nominee because they sort of feel like over the course of the campaign, their candidate was not treated well. Right. And today's Democratic Party is desperate to beat Donald Trump, but it's also highly fractious. You have Democrats who don't want a septuagenarian or a coastal elite to be their nominee. You have Democrats who insist on nothing less than a Green New Deal and Medicare for all and disbanding ICE. You also have, I think, a new element of Democratic primary voters who are moderate Republicans whom Trump has converted to Democrats in the last several years. So these groups are at odds, and I don't think there's one Democrat out of this zillion-way field that's going to make everyone happy. A lot of Democrats' response to your concerns is, we know how important it is to defeat Donald Trump. And at some point, it's going to become very clear who the most viable candidate is, and our voters will get behind that one person. Are you skeptical that this idea of electability will help to really winnow this field in a reasonable way? Well, that's more or less what happened in the 2016 Republican primary, because Republicans were so desperate to beat Hillary Clinton that they did rally around their frontrunner in Donald Trump. And if Democrats do have a breakout candidate, that could happen. But the reality is, if Republicans had played out their 2016 primaries under Democrats' delegate rules, they would have almost certainly headed to a contested convention. And so the rules really do make a big difference, and particularly Democrats' proportionality rule. Dave, let's play the scenario out that um, a number of candidates, we don't know how many it will be, but more than two, make it into the final round of the primaries. And no candidate has been able to capture 50 percent of the delegate vote. But there will be one candidate who has the most raw votes and the most delegates. So won't the superdelegates just go to that person? depends who that person is, right? If it's Bernie Sanders, there will be Democrats in the superdelegate realm who don't like the party's lurch to the left. There's also a large contingent that really wants a woman to be the nominee. I think we learned in 2018 that Democratic voters believe the best way to send a message to Trump is to send a woman. And even though a brokered convention in Milwaukee might not be the single most likely scenario, there's a higher than usual chance of that occurring. So these factors really could play into Donald Trump's hands. Because the longer this process drags out, the better for Donald Trump. They're not focusing, Democrats aren't focusing their fire exclusively on him. And if we learned anything from 2016, President Trump is an expert when it comes to prying open cracks in the Democratic coalition. His campaign invested heavily in Facebook ads that depressed enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton among certain demographic groups. It's possible that there will be deep fissures in the Democratic coalition entering the general election once again. Finally, I often think that the party's response to the last campaign is often very dangerous, right? Fighting the last war as opposed to looking forward. Do you think that Democrats may be overcorrected from 2016 and that they're going to regret the fact that they were thinking too much about that race and not enough about what a 2020 
contest could look like? Well, it's possible that Democrats haven't overcorrected, but rather uh, are trying to solve the wrong problem. If you go back to 2016, Hillary Clinton didn't need superdelegates to put her over the top against Bernie Sanders. It was the perception that the party insiders had gamed the process for her that really damaged her in the general election. But by giving superdelegates a say only on the second and successive ballots, Democrats could actually be heightening their role if no one reaches a majority on the first ballot. David Wasserman, thank you for coming and explaining all of this to us. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Now, one of the first ways that many of us get to see these candidates in action is on the debate stage. But figuring out who gets onto that stage is complicated and chocked full of political landmines. It's been kind of this deep philosophical question of who really counts as a presidential candidate for a major party, which is, it sounds like it should be an easy question, but it turns out to be actually quite complicated. That's... Julia Azari, I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. She's taken a look at these new rules and at first found them to be, well, a bit confusing. The donation threshold was misreported and was a little unclear. So first I thought it was $65,000 and then it was 65,000 donors, which was like a little unusual and hard to get my head around. So the rollout of the debate wasn't great. Now that you do have your head around them, walk us through it. Okay, so the DNC's debate rules, the number of debate participants are capped at 20. Candidate will need to get to at least 1% support in three national polls or polls of early primary states. Raise money from a minimum of 65,000 unique donors from 20 states, and that has to include at least 200 unique donors per state. There's more than 20 candidates, then the party will give preference to candidates who clear both polling and fundraising thresholds. And if there's still more than 20, then invitations will go to candidates who have the highest polling averages. If the number is too many for a single debate, then they will have multiple night debates. Their threshold for too many on a single debate stage was 10. I asked Julia Azari if she thinks it's possible to have a productive discussion, though, with 10 people on stage. A large debate is really, you know, you don't get a lot of exchanges. And absolutely, you get a lot of sound bites, quips, and things like that. I think it may be possible for some winnowing to happen kind of on the bottom, right? They show who is really not quick on their feet or who hasn't thought through some of the issues. That might still come through. But a real substantive exchange between, say, you know, two people who have thought through the issues where you would you know, Democratic primary voters would watch the debate and think, well, you know, do I prefer how Kamala Harris would implement Medicare for all versus how Bernie Sanders would implement it? Like, I don't know that that is going to be an exchange that's going to happen on a stage with 10 other people in any substantive way. And these rules are already having a ripple effect. I think the one thing that is interesting to me is there's the front page story on the Washington Post is about candidates trying to get to 65,000. Donors. donors. And so, yeah, so that that unusual rule has seemed to really matter. And I've seen on social media people saying, mostly with Buttigieg, that they're, they're going to give some money to him because they want him on the debate stage. And I think Andrew Yang also got on using that as well, right? 
Yeah, and that's and so then that becomes kind of an advertisement, and candidates can use their can use this idea of of kind of intra-party debate and democracy and having lots of different voices to to raise money and to raise name recognition. So it's turned out to be this sort of unusual criterion has turned out to be, I think, a little bit of a, you know, have a little bit of an impact and be kind of an interesting twist in this early part of the race with so very many candidates, some of them non-conventional in this race. Julia Azari is an associate professor of political science at Marquette University and a regular contributor to 538. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Takeaway Podcast. Putin would like to see the liberal world order fall apart. People of color have always understood that the American dream was a fantasy and an ideal. There is a crisis of institutional decay in our country. The risk of sea level rise is going to sink us before the seas ever do. Us as men, we have to start doing our work. May your rage be a force for good. For a daily podcast that breaks through the noise, subscribe to The Takeaway wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here's another change that will impact Democrats seeking the presidential nomination. DNC Chairman Tom Perez told me that some states that previously held caucuses will now hold primaries. Our North Star here is we want to return our power to the grassroots. That's why we will have more primaries and less caucuses. I firmly believe that when more people participate and primaries have larger participation, that's good for our democracy. So first, some definitions. What actually is a caucus and how is it different from a primary? Well, a caucus is actually a meeting. You meet at a certain time in a certain place, whereas a primary is a vote. You go in and you vote privately. That's Jeff Link. He's participated in a lot of caucuses. We're going to come back to him. But first, let's turn to Jim Messina, longtime Democratic political strategist, Obama 2012 campaign manager, who thinks it's a good thing that some states, such as Minnesota and Colorado, are swapping the caucus for a primary. That alleviates one of the concerns that we are going to nominate someone who's not in the mainstream. As you know, candidate Sanders beat candidate Clinton in all the caucus states and lost in most of the primary states. But didn't candidate Obama do really well in the caucus states? He did tremendously well in the caucus states, but he also did pretty well in the open states as well. Messina's point is this. Caucuses tend to attract the most committed partisans and activists. These are the people who are willing to spend several hours on a random weekday to cast just one vote. Those activists tend to be motivated more by ideology than your everyday primary voter. On the Democratic side, they're usually much more liberal than the party as a whole. On the Republican side, more conservative. Caucuses are also less expensive for candidates than traditional primaries. That's because the universe of potential voters is also smaller. You don't need to spend millions of dollars trying to reach them all on TV. The most famous or infamous caucus, however, is not going away. That caucus, of course, is Iowa. After the problems of 2016, Democrats in the state have made some reforms on things like transparency of votes cast and an ability to cast a ballot without having to show up at a caucus. I asked Jeff Link 
about the role that Iowa plays in the presidential nominating process. Iowa has been a place where those who beat expectations can sometimes become the winner. And with this large a field, I think everyone sort of expects the current frontrunners of Biden and Sanders to do well. And there is a huge opening for any of the other 18 candidates, like who gets third? Does one of the names that are not so familiar now get second or actually win the caucuses? So we could see somebody come from nowhere. Or the other is not that someone does unexpectedly well, but that a candidate does unexpectedly poorly. It could. It's a double-edged sword. One of the scariest things to have in Iowa is an early lead because you've got to maintain that lead. And if you don't, I mean, remember Howard Dean in 2004 was ahead Mm -hmm. for a long time in Iowa and dropped at the last minute and John Kerry ended up winning. And really, the Dean campaign spiraled downhill very quickly after that. Do you feel it when you're in your own caucus There's like an actual energy there for a candidate. Can you really get a sense of, I think so-and-so really is going to win this thing? You absolutely do. And I'll tell you one story from 2008. I was at my precinct. Senator Harkin happened to show up with Senator Durbin from Illinois. The Clinton people all showed up. The Obama people were kind of milling around, but there was a line that extended from the gymnasium all the way out the door, literally outside, and that was the line for people trying to register to vote. And I remember walking Senator Durbin out the hallway to look at the line, and I said, I think your candidate's going to have a very good night tonight. Obviously, Barack Obama surprised a lot of people by winning the Iowa caucuses, but you could feel it in the room at our precinct. Jeff Link is a Democratic strategist from Iowa. So far, we've been talking about new rules that will impact the Democratic candidates running for president. Official ones, that is, decided by the Democratic National Committee. But here's one that's not exactly official. I'm not taking a dime of PAC money in this campaign. I'm not taking a single check from a federal lobbyist. That, of course, is Senator Elizabeth Warren. And she's not alone. Pretty much every major Democratic candidate has said they will refuse corporate PAC money. Maggie Severns, a reporter who covers money in politics, said there does seem to be a new set of rules for financing campaigns this time around. You know, I would say that there are some new rules, and they're kind of rooted in the previous presidential Mm. election, where we saw some really interesting things going on. You know, most notably, we saw Trump really running on this kind of idea of draining the swamp, you know. And I think that one thing we learned from the last election is that voters are really concerned about corruption, and they're really concerned about money. And so one thing that you're seeing this cycle is a lot of Democrats, as they enter the field, they're putting all these rules on how they raise money. And they're doing this to really make a statement saying, you know, I'm not the candidate of the rich. It wasn't just Donald Trump who ran on the his message was basically you can't buy me off because I've got my own money. Right. So nobody I don't have special interests. And he also sort of exposed the game. Right. Mm -hmm. I was one of those donors. I get it. 
you give money to get access. So he was sort of the truth teller. And the other truth teller was Bernie Sanders, who also ran on this. My average contribution is $27. Now we go to 2018. So many Democrats swore off corporate funding. Yeah, there were dozens of them. And I remember talking to a lot of worried Democratic strategists who said they're never going to be able to raise enough money. They were proven wrong. A lot of these first-time candidates raised five, six, seven million dollars through small-dollar donations or without corporate PACs. Beto O'Rourke raised eighty million dollars with taking no PAC money. But how likely is it that these candidates running for president who need to raise tens of millions of dollars are going to be able to raise that kind of money without tapping into traditional sources of funding? That's And that's really the hot question right now. Um, and I think that when I talk to a lot of strategists and campaign consultants, you know, it's interesting because everyone would love to have tens of millions of dollars and not have to raise any of it. That's kind of the dream. And in a way, that's what I, I mean, that isn't what Sanders did in 2016. But he really, his campaign caught fire and he had tons of people who were giving him lots of money in $27 increments. I think a lot of other campaigns right now, as they're getting going, see being in his position as really a luxury that they can't forward. And so for them, it's kind of saying, how much can we get from the small dollar donations and how much do we have to get from everywhere else? So um, I've kind of used Jay Inslee as one example. You know, a lot of people say, why does he's kind of one of the candidates who has a super PAC helping him, one of very few at this point. Why does Jay Inslee have a super PAC? Well, no one, a lot of people don't know who Jay Inslee is. He's the governor of Washington. He really needs name ID. He doesn't have a Bernie Sanders army of people who are going to help him out. And so he's someone who has wealthy donors, you know, shortly after he announced someone did a $1 million ad buy in Iowa that's going to help get Jay Inslee's name out there. And so I think for a lot of people, there's this combination. No one knows the answer, but what you're seeing campaigns do in action, which kind of shows what their theory of the case is, is really this hybrid. You know, Kamala Harris is a good example. She's someone who's kind of proving to be a powerhouse. She's holding multiple campaign fundraisers every week with a lot of wealthy donors. There are a lot of people who seem to be ready to back her bid, they find her to be really inspiring. And part of the reason that wealthy people find her to be inspiring is because they saw her campaign launch was really packed in Oakland. And they think that she's a really interesting person, you know, and liberals think, oh, Kamala has a lot of grassroots energy. And so, you know, she could really be the nominee. And so they want to line up and support her. But she also is someone who's really working hard to get those small dollar donors up. I think everyone, you know, Democrats are all really jealous of the Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke model right now. But I don't think most people think that they could do a full campaign. I also want to figure out then, we have all these unwritten rules. So who polices them? Who decides which candidate has gone outside the bounds, so to speak, of the right kind of fundraising? You know, okay, well, you're not taking corporate PAC money, but this person who's the CEO of a big pharmaceutical company is doing a fundraiser for you. Is that going to be policed by the individual candidates? by reporters like you, by outside groups? How is that going to work? It seems like it's going to be all of Mm. the above. I think that you've heard a little bit from the candidates policing each other because they certainly, you know, if you... 
if you're going to voluntarily say, I'm not going to do this, you're not going to let someone else off the hook. And it's been a pretty friendly primary so far, but not on this. Like, they're kind of willing to nudge each other a little bit on this issue because I think that it is potent. And it's, you know, and I'm I'm thinking when I say this of Warren in particular is willing to kind of point out um, what she's doing, kind of point out what other people are doing. I think that groups sometimes, you know, you have groups like End Citizens United out there. For the most part, there's no real militant. There's no um, kind of PETA of campaign finance. <laughs> there's no group that's interested in kind of saying everyone has to do X, Y, and Z. But I think there are groups that are interested in kind of playing in this space. And, you know, it's becoming a space that's going to be self-policing, which means it's going to be wild. Mm. I think the question of, is it fair to have, if you say that you don't take corporate PAC money, is it fair to have all of these individuals from these companies giving you your campaigns? I think that ultimately, kind of, if voters start getting angry about that, then candidates are going to have to move on it. And what this is all kind of building towards, by the way, in a sense, is, you know, ultimately one of these people is going to be running against Trump. And I think that it's Democrats have kind of shown over the last since basically since he ran for president, you know, kind of a failure to launch really salient lines of attack on him. And I think that there's kind of this implication when you really kind of dig into some of the strategy and the thinking behind this, you know, yes, this is a primary issue and it's a really becoming a key primary issue for people. But also there's thinking, I think, among a lot of Democrats that this is going to be really, really crucial to when it comes to defeating him is having someone who can have a certain degree of purity about them and be able to really kind of dislodge him and come at him and, you know, the family connections, the Trump industry, the whole idea that he is a corrupt president, how exactly that anti-Trump message eventually gets honed and defined. Um, It'll depend on the candidate. But I think that that's where a lot of this is going. Maggie, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you for having me. Maggie Severns covers money and politics for Politico. zoom out a bit. I was curious what the role of the DNC is these days and how it's changed over the last 25 years. And for that, I brought in my friend. My name is Jamal Simmons. I'm a host on Hill TV and a Democratic strategist. So I've had a lot of conversations with people who were involved with the DNC the last time the Democrats unseated a sitting Republican president, which was 1992. On this day, with High hopes and brave hearts in massive numbers, the American people have voted to make a new beginning. And the role of the DNC at that period, they were pretty clear, was to set the table for the nominee. It's to figure out where the key voters are um, in which states, which states are winnable, uh, where those voters are, pull all the lists together. Um, do some Apple research on the Republican president and start to find some messaging that could work going after that president. So laying the groundwork for how do you actually campaign against uh, the sitting president. So that is, I think that still would be a smart role for the DNC to, to start to do those things. Um, what's different now, obviously, the money is very different. 
and I was just looking back at 2004, I was involved in the campaign that raised a million dollars in the first week, and we thought that was an impressive number. <laughs> right now, if you don't raise that in the first 10 hours, exactly. you're a loser. If yeah. you've raised less than a million dollars in the first day, you're a loser. And now a million dollars isn't even really that much. I mean, mm-hmm. between Beto and Bernie, they've, they've really done five and six times that amount of money. So the money's different. Uh, less of it's going to the party. More of it's coming from small dollar donors. Now the party can still raise money from some of the wealthier donors that maybe candidates don't want to be seen with very often. So you may see more money from the big tech companies, the big Wall Street uh, giants. You may see them going to the Democratic Party instead of going to the nominee's actual account. That's a different state of play. You've been on some campaigns. There were also these unwritten rules between the parties Mm. about what was acceptable and what was unacceptable, what you could do and what you couldn't do. And Donald Trump obviously broke that mold. So what advice do you have for Democratic candidates? Now we're talking post-primary. Yeah. Going up against a president and a campaign that is not following any of the traditional rules. How do you prepare for that? And how do you respond to that? Well, one of my rules uh, about politics that I learned from Bill Clinton a long time ago is that there is no referee um, in politics. There's nobody calling ball strikes or fouls, nobody giving out penalty yards and that kind of thing. When you get attacked, you have to uh, respond. And how you respond will depend on which campaign, which maybe which candidate is, is the nominee, but you can't choose not to respond. I think John Kerry maybe learned that lesson the hard way in 2004 uh, when he was being swift voted. Um, you've got to fight back. You know, one big thing that is different today than was true in, um, you know, 10 years ago or even is there's much more focus on the staff and the um, supporters of a candidate than there used to be. Hmm. There used to be a little bit of an unspoken rule that, you know, we're not really going to, my campaign's not going to attack your deputy campaign manager. Now, unless that person does something that's really flagrant that you want to go after, but we're not running oppo projects on staffers. Um, I'm not sure that's mm-hmm. holding. That's, I mean, that's something people now are much more willing to go after staffers. They'll go after donors. Pretty much everybody in the arena is now fair game. And do you think this also happens in a primary where it's not simply the staffers, but who the staffers are? There's been a really concerted effort by many of these candidates to show that they have diverse staff. They have women sitting at the table. They have people of color sitting in positions of influence. How much of that is going to be important, do you think, to voters? It matters because those candidates are going to end up having to deal with issues wherever they are that will be much more pungent than they were before. So if there's an issue that impacts, let's say, criminal justice reform, Hillary Clinton faced this right in 2016, whoever the candidate is could get a question about Black Lives Matter in New Hampshire, where there aren't that many black voters. But if There aren't people around, they haven't thought through the question, and they get that question wrong in New Hampshire. People in South Carolina and Alabama and Michigan and other states are all going to know it. And so you just got to have a staff built that's prepared to deal with the current ebb and flow of the Democratic Party. I've gotten a couple of calls from, from friends who are thinking about working on campaigns, and they are worried about their personal professional history. So, for instance, someone worked for a bank, Mm. a Wall Street bank, and now they want to go back and do a campaign. And so the question is, do you think 
that I will be attacked or I'll become an issue in the campaign because I used to work for XYZ Bank. And now um, somebody on the other side will say, look at this candidate being influenced by these bankers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, right. Those are know. things we never had <laughs> talked about previously. The other thing that Democrats are talking about a lot, which to me feels brand new, are some of these process arguments about structurally about our political system, the Electoral College size of the Supreme Court, voting age. And these are the sorts of things that activists talked about all the time. And sometimes they'd get raised. You know, if you've been on a campaign trail, Mm -hmm. you've heard people raise some of these issues. But I've never seen a time where so many candidates themselves are also openly saying, yes, we need to get rid of the Electoral College. Yes, we need to expand the size of the Supreme Court. Yes, we need to get rid of the filibuster. So one thing, you hear Elizabeth Warren talk about this. Um, She used this in her speech at Morgan State University earlier this year. It's time to change the rules. The way I see this, we have to make change. It's up to us. Rules matter. And you, you have the power to make this country a more perfect union, to make it be the nation you want it to be. It's not just about playing the game better. We actually have to change the rules of the game because the, ga- the rules of the game may be tilted away from working people and the mass, the majority of the people in the country. This idea that that our group is being disadvantaged by these rules that have been put in place for so long. And so we're going to have to not, again, not just play the game better, but also change the rules. Donald Trump has a similar perspective from the conservative side, the right, who are people who think the rules have been stacked against uh, a bunch of these um, disaffected workers around the country, particularly white workers around the country. And so it's interesting that I think what is happening is because there are so many benefits that are being accrued by people at the top of the income scale, everyone else is feeling put behind and left out of the of the game. The question, if you're a Democrat or Republican, a conservative or, or progressive, is who do you blame? Do you blame government and the lobbyists and all the people who are the government insiders? Or do you blame big business and the folks who are at the top, who are in Wall Street and who are making all these decisions? And I think who you blame determines what side of the... Uh, of the aisle you're on. Jamal Simmons, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you for having me. This is great to be here. All right, here's my take. When it comes to covering a primary, the media spends most of its time focused on the candidates, their personalities, their policies, of course, their blunders. But winning candidates spend a lot of their time focused on the unsexy stuff how to leverage the rules to their advantage. For example, back in 2008, Barack Obama's campaign realized early on that delegate rules meant that the caucuses were going to give them a big chunk of delegates, even though they didn't garner as much media attention as big primary states like Pennsylvania or Texas. This year, Democrats have lots of new written and unwritten rules to figure out. How to raise lots of money without looking beholden to corporatists or the one percenters. How to get on the debate stage and how to make the most of that opportunity. And how to convince primary voters that they won the process fair and square. As we saw in 2016, winning the primary is only one part of the challenge for the nominee. He or she then has to keep the party unified and inspired all the way through the general election. That's all for us today. 
Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. See you next week. Hey, thank you so much for listening to The Takeaway. With news flying at us at such a rapid pace, we really appreciate you choosing to listen to us. We're proud of what we're doing, and we're always striving to improve our coverage. If you like what you hear, or if you just want to connect with us, tweet us at The Takeaway or give us a call at 8778-MY-TAKE. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.